There are nuclear radiation contamination issues around the world, around the country, maybe even in your own backyard, whether you know it or not. And it will take a village, a lot of villages, to turn it around. So when you hear someone who has literally found radioactive materials from a nearby landfill contaminating her own backyard, say... Wouldn't it be nice if all the villages got together and then created a one large coalition from coast to coast? Because we really are part of this ugly radioactive family tree. And we didn't ask for it, but we are. And there are all these branches on the tree. And at some point, we really need to reach out together and link arms and take this to D.C., take it nationally, and make our government be accountable once and for all. When you hear something like that, you know that what she's talking about is the only way out of the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we will visit the Los Angeles area Oscar-qualifying premiere of the documentary Atomic Homefront. This is the film on the battle in North St. Louis for the cleanup of World War II nuclear weapons waste that is illegally buried in the Westlake landfill and in the ever closer path of an underground fire from the adjoining Bridgeton landfill. A scary story if ever there was one. We'll talk with the film's director, Rebecca Camissa, and one of the Just Moms founders, Dawn Chapman, whose harrowing story is one of those featured in the documentary. Then, to fill you in on just one of the stories featured in the film, we'll have an encore presentation of our interview with Spanish Village resident Robin Ellison Daly from Nuclear Hot Seat number 238, November 22, 2016. Plus, we'll have Numbnuts of the Week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness and more honest nuclear information than has shown up in any federal indictment so far. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. The drums of nuclear war are beating as the Trump administration ratchets up its threat with North Korea by seeking to put its nuclear weapons-capable B-52s on 24-hour alert. Such an alert was terminated some 26 years ago after the end of the Cold War. And while the order has not yet been given, preparations are underway in anticipation that it might come. The B-52s carry nuclear-tipped cruise missiles and each one has the potential to carry enough explosive force to match all the bombs that were detonated during World War II, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
that old war horse Henry Kissinger has gone on record as saying that nuclear-armed North Korea is about to kickstart an arms race in which nuclear weapons will spread to the rest of Asia. And then there's this. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound awake. Vice President Mike Pence, remember him? In a series of tweets on Friday, October 27, while Pence was speaking at the Minot Air Force Base, tweeted, There is no greater element of American strength, there is no greater force for peace in this world, than the U.S. nuclear arsenal. Whiskey Tango Foxtrot are you talking about? War is peace, peace is war. This is like Orwell's Newspeak from 1984, a gaslighting language designed to obscure the truth of a situation. Some of the terms that Orwell used, black-white, to believe that black is white, so to know that black is white, you forget that one ever believed anything else. Then there's doublethink, the act of simultaneously accepting two mutually contradictory beliefs as correct. So in Orwellian terms, Mike Pence is a black-white, double-thinking, gaslighting promoter of ultimate war, ultimate death, ultimate destruction of the planet, because that's what makes for peace. And that's why you, Mike Pence, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Workers at the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state violated multiple state laws and regulations in August when they dumped thousands of gallons of contaminated water straight into the soil. Videos and internal records obtained by the King 5 investigators, led by ACE reporter Susanna Frame, document three separate incidents where liquid was dumped from large metal boxes that were marked as containing radioactive materials. Also at Hanford, confirmed that 31 nuclear reservation workers there inhaled, quote, very small amount, doesn't take much, guys, of radioactive material after a take cover order for a contamination spread on June 8th. In Japan, Kobe Steel is embroiled in the disclosure of falsification of steel manufacturing data that extends to products used in nuclear power plants. The company has supplied products to the nuclear industry both in Japan and around the world since the 1960s. What are the odds anybody's going to look for where those pieces of faulty steel may still be lurking? Wondering what impact the radiation from Fukushima may have been having on humans exposed to it? Look no further than a recent study of the ways radiation has changed the monkeys of Fukushima. Japanese macaques have been showing effects associated with radiation exposure, especially youngsters born since March 11, 2011, when the meltdowns at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant began. This according to wildlife veterinarian who has studied the population since 2008, Dr. Shinichi Hayama. His research done on the bodies of monkeys killed in Fukushima City's effort to control the monkey population and protect agricultural cops, shows that the monkeys have smaller heads and brains overall. Those born in the path of fallout from the Fukushima meltdown weigh less for their height than monkeys born in the same area before the March 2011 disaster. 
And these monkeys show a reduction in all blood components, red blood cells, white blood cells, hemoglobin, and the cells in bone marrow that produce blood components. All are symptoms consistent with exposure to radiation. The study has been published in a peer-reviewed journal, Scientific Reports, published by Nature. In Norway, a big win for Don't Bank on the Bomb. The Nobel Foundation said on Friday, October 27, that its prizes will no longer be funded with investments from nuclear arms producers. This just weeks after awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN. In Australia, ICANN has written an open letter to Malcolm Turnbull urging the Australian government to sign the United Nations Global Treaty to Outlaw Nuclear Weapons. Australia has consistently refused to support or sign the banned treaty, supported by 122 countries, arguing that it relies on the protection of the United States nuclear umbrella and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. But the letter to Turnbull, co-signed by more than 90 community religious and human rights groups, argues the global non-proliferation regime has failed. In Canada, the nuclear authorities at Chalk River have yielded ever so slightly to public pressure by announcing that they will not include intermediate-level radioactive waste in the giant multi-story mound of radioactive waste they plan to erect just one kilometer from the Ottawa River and then leave it there, not in a temporary storage facility, but as a permanent dump that will eventually be abandoned. The Canadian government's nuclear liabilities include at least 1 million cubic meters of radium-bearing, radon-generating radioactive wastes left over from radium and uranium processing at Port Hope, Ontario, stretching back for more than 85 years. Pre-fission and post-fusion radioactive waste from Chalk River Nuclear Laboratories accumulated over 73 years. A similar variety of nuclear wastes, radioactive all of them, from the White Shell Nuclear Laboratories in Manitoba. And the radioactive remains of three prototype electricity-producing power reactors. It does not include high-level radioactive waste from 20 commercial nuclear reactors in Ontario, as well as one each in Quebec and New Brunswick. In the UK on October 21st, the Sellafield nuclear facility was evacuated and bomb squads sent in after an incident. A source said a nuclear flask, a container used to transport active nuclear material, had exploded, but officials would not confirm this. Staff on site were rushed out of buildings by Britain's nuclear police force, the Civil Nuclear Constabulary. And in Sweden, nobody's number one target for a nuclear attack, the government is considering building 50,000 new nuclear bunkers in addition to 65,000 emergency shelters able to house 7 million people that are already in place. They plan to be able to shelter the country's entire population in case of a nuclear attack. We'll have today's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to meet its monthly financial obligations. And yes, we have them. Be it a one-time donation or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps to keep honest, verifiable nuclear information flowing out to you, the listeners. Even $5, the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to a barista, will help us meet our costs and keep the program running. So give what you can by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking 
on the big red donate button. And if you want to buy the show that metaphoric cup of coffee every month, you can quickly set up a monthly $5 donation by clicking on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's feature. One of the hardest things for activists to do is to get word out to the general public about the issues they are dedicated to challenging. Thus, it's exciting when a film documentary premieres on one of those issues, let alone a film as excellent as Atomic Homefront. It's the story of the World War II nuclear weapons waste illegally buried in North St. Louis at the Westlake Landfill, which is next to an unstoppable subsurface fire bearing down on it from the adjacent Bridgeton Landfill. It sounds like the plot line of a thriller horror movie, except this one is real. The film is told without narration, just the words and actions of the residents, legislators, landfill representatives, scientists, engineers, and families so desperately impacted by this ongoing nuclear threat. I attended the Los Angeles area premiere in Pasadena on Friday, October 27, where I interviewed the filmmakers. But first, I spoke with Dawn Chapman. She has been a regular interviewee on Nuclear Hot Seat since we started covering the story in North St. Louis over four years ago. Dawn lives within two miles of the Westlake Landfill, is a co-founder of Just Moms STL, the activist group fighting so hard and so brilliantly against it. And she is a powerful force for justice in our movement. Dawn, what brings you out here to Los Angeles and what's it like for you to be at the West Coast or at least the Hollywood Los Angeles area premiere of the movie Atomic Homefront? It's pretty thrilling to see our story and and the people that we love from back home that you know who are brave enough to tell their stories in this film to be out here and have other people come and share in their stories and and really watch them open their eyes and understand not only the suffering that's going on in our community, but then watch them put it together, the suffering that's happening in their own backyards, in their own communities that they live around with radioactive waste out here in California. That would be San Onofre, Santa Susana Field Lab, and also downstream from Porter Ranch. There have been other screenings before. What's been the response from audiences? I think overall, this is kind of the feel-bad movie of the year because it is hard to watch. It is real. It is a documentary. People poured their heart out in this. People allowed this film crew to follow them through some of the most difficult moments of their life and ultimately into their death. And I think that, you know, they did that because this issue means so much to them and they wanted to do what they could to not only take care of our issue and get a resolution, but to also be hope to other communities that have the same issues going on. And I think the audience feels that. I think that you watch this and and I think it's a real David and Goliath film. And it is a truly David and Goliath battle. And I think that hopefully people walk away understanding that they have got to plug in and get involved, that these issues do not solve themselves. Superman is not coming. You cannot just sit and wait around for agencies to get off their, you know what, and fix things. 
What is the plan for the film as regards distribution? I know it's going to be up for a week here in the Los Angeles area for Oscar consideration. That way it qualifies and other filmmakers will come and take a look and hopefully vote for it to get the nomination. Beyond that, when is the film going to be available elsewhere? So we are being told that February 2018 is when it will broadcast on national HBO. And then beyond that, we're not sure. Um, I don't have word on any other screenings except there is one November 15th, 16th, and 17th in New York City. And if this were to have an ultimate impact, what would you like to see this film do? I would love to see more people step up and get involved in these issues. I would love to see people, to see it give people hope. You know, I think people have to understand that there is strength in numbers, there is power in coming together, and that these battles can be won. They can be won politically, scientifically, but it takes a village. I think it may take an entire nation. Well, you know, wouldn't it be nice if all the villages got together and then created a one large coalition from coast to coast? And because we really are part of this ugly radioactive family tree, and we didn't ask for it, but we are, and there are all these branches on the tree, and at some point, we really need to reach out together and link arms and take this to D.C., take it nationally, and make our government be accountable once and for all. Anything you want to add? I just would like to say, you know, to those who see this film, I don't want to give a spoiler, but two of the people that are in the film are no longer here. They gave you, the viewer, those that watch this, they, they shared their most personal moments on their deathbed. And they did so in the hopes that you would watch this. They wanted you to see this. You know, of all the things that you do when you're dying, when you only have a week or so left, to even take an hour or two out with a film crew in the hopes that your story will be told and it will save others' lives. I mean, that is, that is a sacrifice. It really is. So remember that people, people gave precious last moments of their lives for you to watch this film. Don't walk away from it. Just Moms STL co-founder, Dawn Chapman. Next, I spoke with Rebecca Kamisa, the powerhouse director and one of the producers of Atomic Homefront. While she spoke deeply and passionately about the story she'd told through film, our talk took a surprisingly local turn. Rebecca, first of all, welcome here to Pasadena for the showing of Atomic Homefront. When did you and how did you first become aware of this story and what attracted you to it as a film? Well, I actually wasn't attracted to it as a film because I wasn't making a film about radiation, but I was making a film about journalism. But I spoke with a friend about stories that were going on in the United States that didn't have national coverage, that were very underreported stories. And he just mentioned St. Louis. He goes, oh, St. Louis, then definitely. And I went, St. Louis, what about St. Louis? What are you talking about? And this geologist friend of mine mentioned what was going on in the landfill between a fire and radioactive waste, and I just thought he was making it up. It seemed too incredulous to me. So I started researching it and looking into it, and then realized, oh, God, there's something here. And then I made the trip out with a fellow producer, Jim Friedberg, and we arrived in Bridgeton, and we went to this ball field, and there was the EPA in moon suits with 
pushing these carts, to, trying to, I guess, detect stuff or test the, uh, the ball field. So we thought, oh, there's something going on here. And then we decided to pursue the story and just kind of got drawn into it more and more. So this was not a story I intended to tell in the first place. How did you get started with it actually being something that you filmed? Did you get backing for it, or did you just show up places with cameras? Well, um, I'm New York-based, so in order to come to St. Louis and spend time to do the story, we needed to be funded, you know, bringing crew in, staying a while, accommodations, hotel flights. We needed a budget. So we started um, going to private investors and to foundations to get money to start. And that money helped get us through until we raised more money. So we raised a little bit of money, then moved to St. Louis, and then got more as we went along. What was it like for you moving through the story and into the personal world of the people who were dealing with this on a daily basis? Well, I wish it was a story, but it's really a many-headed hedra. There are all of these stories in different ways. There's not only just the landfill, the Bridgeton landfill story. There's the Coldwater Creek story. There's the whole history of Malincrod, the history of the Manhattan Project. Then there's the science. Then there's where is the fire? Who do you believe? What agencies are telling the truth? Is there a true regulation at the site? Then there's the personal stories. Then there's the public face to the story. Is it going to happen? Is what these people are fearing really, really possible scientifically? Or are they just kind of, you know, neurotic, uh, right? So we were there, we filmed, and we observed, and over time, things revealed themselves. And I think the most important thing we came away with is that in the very beginning, everything that agencies or officials told us was true ended up not being true. And all of the fears of the community <laughs> ended up really being the case. And we only really knew that once we went through this three-year process of filming and, and sticking around and seeing what happens. What was the time frame during which you were filming this? Um, we started in August of 2014. Um, the last shoot we had was November 2016, I believe. Yeah. And then a year of editing. I know it's been said, and I have documentary filmmakers who have told me, that if you're shooting a documentary, you don't really know what your story is until after you've got all the footage and start putting it together. How did you deal with these many hydra-headed stories and weave them together into a single film? What was the thread that allowed you to walk through it? There are certain scenes that we shot in the film that we knew were important. They were transitional. They were dramatic. They were filled with truth. They were filled with pathos. We knew that a lot of those scenes needed to be in the film. But I'd be a liar to say, oh, we just did this and this and this. No, the secret to great documentary filming is having a superior editor who can really step in and take control. And our editor was Madeline Gavin, and she is a magician. She's a genius. We had so much footage and so many stories and a lot of detail and secret documents and not-so-secret documents and science. And here this woman took our footage. Yes, she had a bit of an outline, but she's the one who really cut this movie to make it move, be dramatic, be truthful, understandable, and really give it a narrative feel, like a fiction film, and keep it going. I mean, if I said to you, you're going to watch 90 minutes of a film about nuclear waste, you'd probably be like, 
all right, I either need a cocktail or, you know what, I'll just watch it at home, you know, in my spare time. No one wants to show up to watch a film about nuclear. I'm like, I don't either. But our editor, Madeline Gavin, really created this dramatic, moving, unrelenting documentary. Yes, it, you shoot in the field and making those decisions story-wise, but it's also, at the end of the day, it's the editor that faces how to put this together, how to put that puzzle together and have it it's almost it's like code cracking in a way now that you have this dramatic film together and it's going to be shown for a week here in Mm -hmm. Pasadena this is Oscar qualifying week yes once it qualifies what is the future plan already in place even without Oscar consideration well you know there are some very important aspects of this film Number one is outreach. Why we love having it in theaters, you know, we didn't have full distribution for the film where it could be open in 50 cities nationwide. We didn't have that financial backing to do that. So we were able to afford opening in New York and opening in Los Angeles, and that's also a way to qualify for the Academy Award. But putting that aside, the two main elements of this film are the outreach And eventually HBO will be broadcasting the film. So the film will then enter everyone's living rooms who has the HBO subscription. And what we really hope is that people will see the film and start to go, the light bulb goes on. Oh, wait, this is familiar. My community's facing this. Wait, didn't we have a new, why are we sick? I'm really hoping people that are unaware of the situation but know something's wrong, can all of a sudden start to get more curious, ask questions, and look at this film as a basis for how to maybe educate themselves and proceed if they end up having to fight to not be poisoned. So the outreach and getting it out nationally is super important because what we've realized, I was hoping when we went around with this film across the country, it would be just poor St. Louis. Oh, St. Louis, you know, St. Louis is struggling, it's a problem. No, everywhere we go, every community or state has a toxic site or a radioactive site. And the question is, has it been cleaned up? Has it not? And I think San Onofre is a perfect example of how this situation in St. Louis is in the now right now. San Onofre, there's a proposal to dump 1,800 tons of radioactive waste, high-level waste, 125 foot from the beach. What idiot thinks that's a good idea. So if anyone asks themselves, gee, I wonder in 10 years what would happen if something went wrong, well, guess what? All you have to do is look at this film and see what happened to St. Louis. This stuff was dumped for decades, 20, 30 years. You see the result of what happened to these people. So the residents of San Clemente, Oceanside, San Diego, and all the way up the line, Huntington Beach, they can look at that film and go, okay, if this stuff isn't, temp- isn't temporarily put there and it isn't moved and something gets compromised, this is what could happen to us. It's really a cautionary tale of what the future could be for the San Onofre area, the area's residents near the San Onofre site or where they're burying this stuff. So... I'd like to say being out in California is a real nice visit, but when we got out here, we started realizing, wow, there are a lot of sites in California that are experiencing some of the same problems. Actually, there are three. There's the area around San Onofre. Yes. There's the Santa Susana Field Lab, right. which I'm hoping some of the people I invited from there will be able to make mm-hmm. it here tonight. Mm-hmm. And the third one that nobody's talking about is when Porter Ranch had its major 
methane leak. Oh, yes, what nobody course, mentioned sure. is that radon gas was being released at the same time. Why not? I mean, that was a big story, and we were even tuning in in New York of what was happening with this gas leak. How did the radon thing not get reported? It was mentioned in a list of what was being released, but the focus was completely on methane. And I did a special on Nuclear Hot Seat where I interviewed people about what does it mean to have this much radon being released, and it was pretty alarming. And I sent the episode around. I even went to a meeting, and I spoke directly with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and they had their hands full with methane. They couldn't shift their focus to include the radioactive factor of it. Everybody was focusing on that as opposed to the radon. So are you saying then that a lot of the residents in the Porter Ranch area didn't even know radon was being released? Or they did know and they just couldn't get any play of, you know, any reportage to happen about that issue? That wasn't the focus. It's like the focus was extremely narrow. And because radon is something that is quote-unquote remediated if it shows up in your basement, nobody understands the true long-term impact of it. Is there anything else you would like to share or you would like to let us know? about the film? We had a screening, the International Documentary Association hosted a screening this last Tuesday. And one gentleman who's fighting the whole burial of the the waste from San Onofre came. His name is Torgan Johnson. I know Torgan. And they're going to start dealing with this or doing what they're going to do next month. There is an urgency to get an injunction or to stop this or at least stop it to reconsider it, to think deeper. So what I would say to any residents, whether they're in Southern California or California in in general, really try and reach out, take action, and help the community that's dealing with the San Onofre fight. Torgan actually sent us an email stating seven steps that would help right off the bat, that people can help. And we posted those on our Facebook page, the Atomic Homefront Facebook page. And if people really want to help, I mean, that call to action to try and get this burial of that way stopped is profoundly important. So if I was going to say anything out here being in California, it's all Californians here listening to this. Can you call your city, the city council? Can you target the Coastal Commission? People should just barrage them with emails or calls. Please get them to reconsider this decision. Um, the California Coastal Commission, they really need help down there. And they need the help now. I mean... It's so funny. The moms were out here and Doug Clemens from the CAG out in St. Louis. And, you know, we're all caught up in St. Louis story. But once we met with Torgo, we were like, oh, my God, we have to help out here. So our minds are on San Onofre out here, strangely enough, not on the film necessarily. So I would urge your audience just to jump on that and try and help. Because I haven't studied it. I'm not a scientist. But please... Make an informed decision. Take time on it. Just burying radioactive waste on a beach sounds pretty damn dumb to me. So reconsider it or just give it a little more time before you're going to start doing it. And the only way that that's going to happen is if the community and citizens and taxpayers start really acting. Atomic Home Front director and one of its producers, Rebecca Camissa. And yes, we will bring you up to speed on San Onofre in the coming weeks. One of the deeply moving stories shared during this film is that of Robin Ellison Daly and her husband Mike, who live at the very edge of the landfill. Nuclear Hot Seat interviewed Robin for our program number 283 last November 22nd. To give you a fuller sense of the issues faced by the residents, 
Here is an encore presentation of that interview. Robin Ellison Daly is a member of Just Moms STL. She lives in Spanish Village, a subdivision butt up against the Westlake landfill in North St. Louis. Robin's been in the news lately because she and her husband had their house tested for radiation. And what was discovered? Well, you'll hear more about it in just a moment. Robin and I spoke on Monday, November 21st, not about our most recent Facebook topic, which is the attractiveness of letting one's hair go naturally gray, but the situation with her home and what it's like to be hit with that kind of news. Robin Ellison Daly, thank you so much for being my guest today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you, Libby. I greatly appreciate you reaching out to me because this is a very serious development that has just recently occurred around the Westlake landfill issue. Let's take this in a sequential order so that people can understand exactly what's going on and exactly what it means. First of all, tell us where you live and how long you lived in your home and how close it is to the Westlake landfill. I live in a small subdivision of about 92 to 98 homes. The name of the neighborhood is called Spanish Village. It is located in a suburb of St. Louis, Missouri, which is called Bridgeton, Missouri. And that little subdivision is located 0.42 miles south of the Westlake Landfill, Bridgeton Landfill. How long have you been aware of the problem with nuclear materials illegally and improperly buried at the Westlake Landfill? Well, my husband and I, along with our 15-year-old son, moved to this community in 1999. And at that time, we were totally unaware, and we just went about our lives of working and raising children. Until about 2011, we saw a young local woman on television speaking about a fire in the Bridgeton landfill. And she also said, when she was explaining that, that the Department of Natural Resources for the state of Missouri told her that the underground fire was the least of her concern because she needs to also worry about the radioactive waste that is in an adjoining landfill at the Westlake landfill. What was your feeling or your response when you saw this interview? Mike and I, my husband and I, we were just shocked. We looked at each other. We looked at the television. I turned back to Mike and I said, what in the hell have we just moved ourselves into? I never heard of such a thing. I'm from the St. Louis region. I was born and raised here. It's a dirty little secret, this St. Louis Radway's legacy. And now I'm living less than a half a mile from it, and it has become a cause that I and my husband are fighting for some answers for and to eradicate it. How did you become involved in this issue in a larger way, and how did you become part of an activist response to it? At the time my husband and I found out, we also heard that the EPA had instituted and sanctioned its public vehicle for communicating with the public regarding Superfund site, and that is called a community advisory group. So we went to where this community advisory group, EPA-sanctioned meeting, was held, and we started to get some more background information 
about it. And the more we became involved in that, we realized that really we need something more grassroots and our minds went back to the young woman that we had seen on television, Dawn Chapman, first bringing this to light about the underground fire and one landfill working its way towards the red waste and the other landfill. And Mike and I decided that we need to check with this Just Moms STL organization that seemed to fit more our leanings than EPA because you have to be very subdued and mind your P's and Q's, and it's very difficult to do when you are so filled with emotion, fear, and anxiety and trying to hold the EPA accountable. So that's when we decided to find more information about Just Moms and get involved with those ladies, and we have been ever since. What were some of the things that you've done through the years with the Just Moms group? Oh, we have done numerous things. We have gone to Jefferson City to speak on behalf of state legislation that was going to be written that would have benefited the corporate polluter that is owning the landfill, uh, Republic Services. We've also been to Washington, D.C. We have, we've done pickets and informational protests. We've also done a petition drive and delivered 12,000 signatures to our state governor who has ignored those entirely and never acknowledged receipt of them. We have done a lot. Tirelessly, these women have devoted themselves and taken away time from their families to give presentations regarding this rad waste history, how it was processed, how it was illegally and carelessly stored and improperly handled and disposed of in a landfill. It's quite amazing when you see this presentation. It really brings to light how this contamination wound up being over uh, 100 sites in the St. Louis region. They have spent long, dedicated many, many, many hours for several years, and my husband and I are trying to help them continue to spread the word and support them as much as we can. In this period of time, have you found any satisfaction with response from either the government, the EPA, your local government officials, or Republic Services? Has anyone acknowledged the problem and taken steps that you would say are in the right direction to coming to some kind of resolution for you and the others who are trapped in the situation? It has been very frustrating, to say the least trying to learn what a federal agency whose main objective is the protection of human health and the environment is not what this old 60s, 70s hippie gal would have thought she would have been getting involved in. It's much more complicated. It is not all kumbaya, we hear you, we're here to support you. It's creates a lot of frustration and miscommunication. And and as far as them hearing us and being responsive, it has its moments of clarity and its moments where it's not so good. And Republic Services, they need to step up and take responsibility for this site that they have bought and they have been managing. They knew full well the history of this site. They have a fiduciary duty to their stockholders. They didn't come into this not knowing and just making a willy-nilly decision. This was a carefully crafted decision, 
and therefore we want to hold them responsible because they are a responsible party of this disaster uh, waiting to happen down there. And we just need more accountability and more transparency. And it seems the more involved we get, we have very small successes. We mostly have a lot of frustration and feel like we're back to square one again with the EPA as well as Republic. How did you learn that you had radioactivity? I believe it was first discovered in your backyard. Yes, this community has had its fair share of law firms coming and going, seeking clientele for lawsuits which have been settled out of court by Republic Services. So they have also, you know, tied up a lot of these people with those settlements to be hush-hush and they can't uh, talk against Republic or anything about them any longer. So another radiation global environmental law firm came forward and they seemed to be able to have the ways and the means rather than being a personal injury law firm. This one is one that really is, is a big gun. And when they came to my husband and I saying that we can surely help you, we have the ways and the means to get this testing done at uh, credible and credentialed third-party sources for testing. We were hesitant because we've been through the lawyer trolling before, but this one was much different. This one was not what we had seen in the past. So we took them up on their offer, and then they brought us these results, which we had always held in the back of our mind that this was a possibility, and yet we hoped and prayed that it would not be the case, that it would show positive for radioactive contamination. But we were willing to accept whatever the results were. And if this is what the results are, and if this is if we had to be the first ones to take a step out in faith to help show other residents and homeowners that they too must be vigilant, they shouldn't take the word of a government agency or a corporate polluter, that they need to think of their own interests and do right by that. And so that's what brought us to being that really the, the first to be tested and to uh, bring the results public to the region. And you're talking about having the inside of your house tested as opposed to the tests that took place in the backyard and along Coldwater Creek and the like. Is that correct? Yes, we have had the inside and the outside of our property on our property tested. Without going into information that might compromise your legal case, what can you tell us about how the tests were done or what areas were tested and the levels of radioactivity that resulted? Well, the uh, radiation technician was here for quite some time. He was here for several hours. I did not follow him around anywhere that he went. I also had other obligations that I had previously committed to, so I did not uh, shadow him in any way. I only assisted him when he was looking for dust because he had a difficult time finding enough dust particles and then my husband happened to show him a special place underneath our cabinets where the kick plate falls down. And that was like a bingo spot. He said, bingo, that's just what he's looking for. So he found it underneath the kitchen cabinets. This has been reported, publicly reported. 
under the kitchen cabinets, underneath the, underneath the refrigerator, in our backyard, as well as in our basement, above the basement windows, and I have four windows in my basement. That is what's been tested so far. There is going to be, I am guessing, more testing done by the EPA because they want to do their own testing and split the samples with the legal team. So there's going to be more testing. There's plenty more dust. Nobody went up in the attic yet that I know of. First of all, I am so sorry to hear this and to know that you're going through this because it sounds like a tremendous nightmare for one to find out that you've been living with radioactivity within your home. What has been the response of others in your community, in the Just Moms group? Is there now a stampede for others to get their homes tested? Has there been any pushback against you, not only having the test done, but going public with it? There has definitely been some awareness in the community, and people are reaching out to me, as well as those that attended last week's mom's meeting where the legal team was there to explain the findings and what exactly they do and what all is involved. There are people that even spoke to that legal team during that time, and people are still contacting me for information. And as far as backlash, yes, the attorneys did speak to my husband and I about what's known as the hated hero syndrome. And it wasn't but just a few days ago that I started experiencing this hated hero syndrome on Facebook. It's to be expected we are being more mindful and very cautious about our surroundings, people coming into our neighborhood. All the streets are on courts, so there's only one way in and one way out. And so we're very mindful of who is coming and going up and down our court, who's parking on the side of our of the street. We're just being more and more mindful because we need to be, is what we were warned. Was the testing expensive and was it paid for by you or was this something that the attorneys provided? I do not know the cost. This is all in pursuant to the lawsuit that's been filed, they will get their compensation at the end when any settlement and or jury trial reaches a decision, whichever that may be. So there is no money that has to come out of any residence's pocket right off the bat, nothing whatsoever. Tell us about the lawsuit, what you can of it. Who is it against and what are you asking? It's against nine defendants mostly that have connection to either the processing of the uranium or in some way or fashion involved with the transportation of the rad waste that was illegally dumped here and the current uh, landfill owners and any subsidiaries of theirs. So it's quite an extensive lawsuit. They're seeking all sorts of damages you know, uh, pain and suffering, loss of home value, medical monitoring, you know, just the egregious way that this stuff was handled. And homes were built around it, and it was dumped there while this subdivision was even being built. So there's a lot of negligence all the way around, and it goes high from high to low. But we've got the primary players that were involved in this since uh, 1945 to 1970 and to present time.
when did you find out the results of the testing? And how long between then did it take for the story to go public, as it has very widely, especially in the St. Louis area, though I've seen it on national media as well? It has been a couple of months since I was told that the results were in, and then about a month or so after that, I was told the specifics of the test results, and then a month after that, then we filed the lawsuit and have also gone public to the media. All in all, all about 60 to 90 days at the most. Speaking of the media, how has the coverage been? Has there been empathy for you or sympathy? Has it been accurate or have there perhaps been other attitudes coming in? The St. Louis media has been very well receiving of this news. They have been very cordial, very respectful to my husband and I when they have come. Some of them I have spoken to before for interviews in previous years. So we do have a relationship. Some of them are new because some of the other reporters have been moved to other beats, and so we lose contact with those. But all in all, it's been a very good response. I am pleased with the coverage. It has been very accurate so far. Which is at times remarkable when it comes to anything to do with nuclear. With this story blowing up in such a personal way, how have you and your husband and your family been doing with it? How are you coping with it? Actually, we've been coping with it very, very well. We have been very, very involved in this landfill. I had even been subpoenaed by the landfill because of a previous lawsuit that the Republic had served myself and Don Chapman. So I am not unfamiliar with that aspect of being an activist and uh, being held accountable. They know me full well. I have been on panels speaking with Russ Naki, who is the Vice President of Communications for Republic Services. He knows me well. He knows where I stand. I make no bones about it. So we've been handling it very well. I still continue to do what I do. I just need to be very respectful and mindful, and I'm going to do that because this is not only going to affect me, but it will affect the case for many others, and I don't want to damage that in the least. What's next for you? I don't like to count my chickens before they're contaminated. <laughs> but so far, they're looking pretty pretty solid on that end. So I'm just hoping for the EPA to do the right thing. Gina McCarthy said that relocation Voluntary relocation was not off the table. We're hoping that she will pull through with that. We're going to hold her feet to the fire and hold her true to what she has said. We also are going to hold EPA responsible, that's what's next, for them to follow through with their testing. Come up here to Spanish Village. This whole neighborhood needs to be tested. And those that don't want to be tested, that's fine. I fight for the non-believers, the fence-sitters, and the believers. They can all benefit from this from one way or the other, and if they choose not to, so be it. But at least give them a fighting chance. At least give them the opportunity to have the knowledge to decide what to do with it. I mean, that's all we ever asked for was just to be treated like people, not like trash. And what do you think 
is the best possible result that can come from this if EPA and Republic and the Missouri governmental officials as well all come into alignment and go, we've got to help these people. What would that look like? I hope that would also involve input from this community rather than them deciding for us what is best because we are the ones living it, we are the ones that have been living it, that have endured it, and we are the ones that know what's best for ourselves, not those with the powers that be. So they need to listen to the people. They need to consult the people, and the people need to be involved in every step of the way of this decision. Is there anything you can think of that we need to cover that we haven't? For those of you that don't know about Westlake Landfill, please join Westlake Landfill Facebook group and Just Moms STL Facebook page, and also check out www.stlradwayslegacy.com for more information and how you can help. Of course, we are wishing you the best as this continues to move forward. This is from one aging hippie to another. (laughs) I thank you so much. We've been in touch a lot on Facebook with each other, and I want to thank you now for being in touch with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat by being my guest on the show this week. My pleasure, and I am humbled that you asked me, Libby. Thank you so very much. That was North St. Louis resident and another of the Just Moms, Robin Ellison Daly. Atomic Homefront will be showing at the Cinema Village in New York beginning on Friday, November 17, and it will be broadcast on HBO sometime next February. We'll let you know when that happens. Activist shout-out! A reminder that we still need you, yes you, sitting right there listening to this. We need you to call your senators and representative to support the Lou Markey Bill. This is the Restricting First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act of 2017, House Bill 669 and Senate Bill 200. If you haven't called, call. If you've already called, call again. Write letters to the editor. Comment on articles and blogs. Tweet about it. This bill is about keeping the nuclear button in the nuclear football out of the hands of the president, any president, without authorization by a vote of Congress. No one person should ever have the power to launch a nuclear first strike, and here's where the checks and balances that this country's founders built into the Constitution need to move into action which is what you need to do, move into action, ASAP. And here's today's final thought. Atomic Homefront is the most powerful, most professionally produced film on any aspect of the nuclear issue that I've seen. It moves with the overwhelming speed and power of a Hollywood thriller, only it's all too real. It focuses on the heart-wrenching human stories, and does so with compassion and a barely suppressed rage. I was privileged to watch it sitting next to Don Chapman, whose words and work are featured in the film. I've come to know Dawn through our many private talks, as well as the interviews she's granted this show. As the film ended and the credits ran, I broke down sobbing. Yes, the story. 
Yes, the pain. And yes, the overwhelming realization that this wasn't some fictional fantasy. It was real. Is real. And one of the people it is happening to, someone I care about, was sitting next to me, putting her arm around me to comfort me as I cried over what was done to her and so many others, so many of whom I'd met or interviewed, all of whom have been terribly wronged by the incompetence and arrogance of the nuclear industry. If Atomic Homefront should have a screening near you, I urge you to go and bring friends and neighbors with you. As director Rebecca Camissa pointed out repeatedly, this is the story of us all. If you have a nuclear facility or a dump near you and want to know what the future looks like, watch this movie and know that in 10, 20, 30 years from now, this can and will be you and your family and your neighbors. And if you're in the Los Angeles area and happen to be a member of the Motion Picture Academy, an Oscar voter, you must see this film. Then voted an Oscar nomination. That will help more people know about it. And the more people know about it, the more good it can do. And the more chance that our friends and neighbors in North St. Louis and near San Onofre and everywhere else, the nuclear demon raises its head to poison lives, these people will have a fighting chance at something resembling justice. And right now, that's the best we can hope for. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 31st, 2017. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, as well as interviews with genuine experts on the issues, take a moment to send a donation to nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that, as Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So, okay, you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.